Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we're launching our gratitude deep dive for six weeks, seven Sundays, beginning today. We want everything we do as a congregation to be connected to this theme. And so we have activities planned and we have a Wednesday evening series that starts this week. And we also have the sermon series on, guess what? Gratitude. My guess is that most of us do pretty well with gratitude and expressions of gratitude some of the time, like when it's sunny outside and not too hot, but also not too cold, or when we're eating really good food, or spending time with people we really enjoy, or seeing something that's especially beautiful, when we're healthy and feeling good, when someone gives us an unexpected gift. Gratitude might come very naturally in these situations, and we're likely to give thanks. But I've been thinking about an old poem by George Herbert, in which he writes this, Thou who has given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart, not thankful when it pleases me, as if thy blessings had spare days, but such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. You see, that sounds different. George Herbert seems to be after something a little deeper and more consistent. He's asking for more than occasional thanksgiving. He's after more than gratitude when his circumstances are pleasing. He's asking for a heart pulsing with gratitude. He wants a life that is profoundly characterized by gratefulness. He wants a grateful heart. Anachronistically, we might say he doesn't want a gratitude app. You can probably down one of those, download one of those to your phone, and, and it would probably prompt you with periodic reminders to be thankful. George Herbert says, forget that. Forget the gratitude app. He says, I want the gratitude operating system. I don't merely want the option of gratitude every now and then. I want gratitude to be hardwired into how I live and move and have my being. And family, I want that too, don't you? And what would it look like for us as individuals and a congregation to have hearts pulsing with gratitude? What does it look like to have a grateful heart? How do we get that? Well, I'd like to submit for your consideration that the Apostle Paul had what George Herbert was after. He had a grateful heart. He had a life pulsing with gratitude and praise and thanksgiving to God. We see an expression of this in the remarkable passage from Ephesians that we read together. In Greek, remember, all of that is just one long run-on sentence. 
doesn't even stop where we stopped. It keeps going all the way through verse 14. It's like Paul can't contain himself. It's like his mind is exploding with praise. His heart is pulsing with gratitude at the manifold gifts of God. Paul had a grateful heart. How can we? How do we become grateful? Not just every now and then, not just on the sunny days, but how do we practice gratitude as a way of life? How is a grateful heart cultivated? You know, we might think that the key is to try to master and control our circumstances. We might think, I'll have a grateful heart when the circumstances of my life are good and pleasing. I'll be full of gratitude when things are going well for me. And so then we might try to curate our lives so that only the good stuff gets in and all the bad stuff stays out. <laughs> well, have you got that down yet? I mean, it doesn't really work, does it? At the end of the day, we just don't have that much power over our circumstances. Like, you can't make the sun shine. It's just not within our power to make our lives easy and pain-free. There are too many factors and variables outside our control. And so trying to master our circumstances probably won't lead to gratitude, more likely frustration and disappointment. And the truth is, even if we could curate our lives so that only the good stuff gets in, that wouldn't necessarily lead to a grateful heart, would it? I know that too often my tendency when things are going well in my life is not to feel gratitude and to give thanks, but rather to take credit for it. Or sometimes I just take good circumstances for granted. So we can't make things go well for us, and even if we could, that wouldn't automatically lead to gratitude. Well, here's another option. If we can't master our circumstances, maybe we can master ourselves. If I can't control my circumstances, maybe I can at least control how I respond to my circumstances. And so we can make the, re the resolution, I'm just going to be grateful, and I'm going to have a grateful heart, no matter what. Now, I think it's possible maybe to have a little more success with this second strategy. In fact, there was an ancient philosophy in a way of life called Stoicism, which was still practiced in Paul's day. And one of the things Stoics attempted was to master their response to their circumstances so that they could be happy and content in any and every situation. Here's how one of the Stoics puts it. The happy man is content with his present lot and is reconciled to his circumstances. You see, the goal was to be at peace with whatever life brings. But here's the thing. The easiest way to make peace with circumstances is to pursue a kind of indifference. That's what the Stoics did. Their goal was to lead a balanced, emotionally calm life, detached from their circumstances. They said, whatever fate brings my way, it's not going to affect me. Which doesn't quite rise to the level of Christian gratitude. Like, fine, maybe the Stoic isn't existentially crushed when bad stuff comes his way, but his heart isn't pulsing with gratitude either. If you put a Stoic in a Roman prison, he might not be complaining, but you won't find him singing, which, remember, is exactly what the Apostle Paul was able to do. He had a grateful heart that was able to sing even while he was in a Roman prison. And we might wonder, was he just out of touch with reality? No, I don't think so. Paul had his eyes wide open. His grateful heart wasn't the result of detaching himself from reality. Somehow he was full of gratitude, not by ignoring all the hard stuff, but right in the very midst of it. What made the difference for Paul, I wonder? 
How can we have a grateful heart like he had? There's a place in Paul's letter to the Philippians where Paul is encouraging that church toward a life of gratitude, a life full of rejoicing and thanksgiving, a life free of anxiety. And he writes this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things, he says. See, that's important. Paul is saying, get your mind involved. Focus it on what's good. It's like gratitude starts with paying attention. It starts with noticing the goodness and grace and beauty we've received. Psychologists who study gratitude point out that gratitude involves seeing the gift, whatever it is, affirming its goodness, and then recognizing it as coming from a source outside ourselves. And this means that there is some mental work involved. We can cultivate grateful hearts by focusing our attention in particular ways, by setting our minds on the gifts we've received, by noticing them and remembering them. The psychologist Robert Emmons puts it like this, grateful people are masters at turning their minds to the ways in which they are supported and sustained. You see, grateful people see that they are the recipients of good gifts that have been given by someone else. It's like grateful people see the pain and suffering, but that's never all they see. They also see the gifts, good gifts, good gifts that they can't take credit for. I think Paul had his, his eyes wide open. Um, he saw the Roman prison, but that's not all he saw. What else did he see? Well, you know, I'm sure all kinds of things. He saw his Roman captors as beloved image bearers for whom Christ died. Maybe, maybe every morning he saw sunlight falling through the window of his cell. I mean, he saw gifts of goodness and truth and beauty. We know that he focused his mind by writing letters. And so, for example, he was able to turn his mind toward the cascading gifts of Ephesians chapter 1. Neuroscientist Rick Hansen says that the brain takes the shape of whatever the mind rests upon. I think that's so interesting. It's like our brains, neurologically, are to some extent physically formed by the thoughts we think. He says that if we set our minds upon worry and sadness and annoyances and irritations, our brains at the neural level, they'll begin to take the shape of anxiety and depression and anger. And on the other hand, if we ask our brains to, to start noticing the gifts in our lives and to give thanks for them, we can actually find things to be grateful for. Our brains begin to, to uh, take the shape of gratitude. See, gratitude has a lot to do with what we notice and what we pay attention to. So does ingratitude. In fact, think back to the very beginning of the Bible story. The whole world is teeming with the gifts of God. Everything is either good or very good. But then that mysterious talking snake shows up and he asks, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, God did not actually say that. The truth was just the opposite. God gave them every tree to eat from with only one exception. All the trees were, good, were God's good gifts to them. There was only one tree that wasn't given. 
And what does the snake do? It takes a spotlight and shines it on the one forbidden tree. Look over here. Notice this. It draws Adam and Eve's attention away from God's manifold provision and gets them focused instead on God's only prohibition. They literally have a world full of beautiful trees that they can eat from, but the snake shifts their gaze off of that forest of goodness and onto the one tree that can kill them. Now, do you think the snake has abandoned that strategy? I don't think so. I mean, someone says 10 really kind things about you, and then one thing that kind of rubs you the wrong way, and what do you notice? What do you pay attention to? It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, when Paul describes humanity's turn from God, Paul explicitly mentions ingratitude. He says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's like ingratitude is part of the foundation of all sin. What if Adam and Eve had kept their attention on the forest that had been given to them rather than focusing on that one tree that had not? Both gratitude and ingratitude are connected to what we see and fail to see. And I wonder, what do you see? What do you fail to see? The Apostle Paul had a grateful heart, not because his life was easy, not because he had his eyes closed to the reality of his difficulties, but because he knew in all of it how to pay attention to God's gifts. And in that way, Paul was like Jesus. Remember Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? If Jesus were a Stoic, how would he have behaved in that situation? Like he'd react with some level of detachment. It wouldn't appear to get to him. He would kind of float above the pain and grief and sadness of his friend's death. But Jesus wasn't a stoic. We see him weeping. He's profoundly moved and grieved. He doesn't ignore the reality of death. He doesn't ignore the sadness of it. He gives expression to it. He sees the death of Lazarus, Lazarus and so he weeps. But he sees more than the death of Lazarus. He sees the presence and promises of God. And so what does he do? Do you remember? He gives thanks with a grateful heart. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. You know, a lot of people at the tomb of Lazarus only saw part of the picture. They saw the death of their friend. That's what they were paying attention to. The spotlight was only on death and loss. They didn't see the presence and the promises of Jesus. But Jesus could both weep and give thanks. He was both grieved and grateful because his eyes were open. To the degree that I see what I really have and to the degree that I see it as grace, I'm grateful. But if I fail to see what I have or if I fail to see that it's a gift, I'm not grateful. Grace and gratitude in both Greek and Latin, they share the same root. It's like they're supposed to go together. Karl Barth wrote that grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning, close quote. At least it should, right? But we have to see the grace. We have to acknowledge it. We have to pay attention to it. And when we do perceive it, when we perceive grace, the most natural response is gratitude. In the coming weeks, we'll hear about different strategies for cultivating and practicing gratitude. 
and we'll talk about things we can do to make gratitude more and more our default mode. But you might wonder, is this just about tricking our minds into feeling a certain way? I've wondered that. But what I've realized is that no, this isn't about pulling some kind of Jedi mind trick on ourselves. This is about getting ourselves in touch with our true condition. A heart pulsing with gratitude is a heart that is in tune with reality. Because what is our reality? Well, it's Ephesians chapter 1. We haven't spent much time looking at this passage, but let me just take a spotlight and shine it for a moment on verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I wonder how you hear that. See, I worry that when we hear spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, our eyes kind of glaze over <laughs> because it sounds like pious jargon. Usually we associate spiritual things with immaterial things. We hear spiritual blessing and we start thinking of things that lack substance, that lack reality. Spiritual blessing kind of sounds like it might mean no blessing at all. And heavenly places, well, that just sounds really, really far away. It might as well be nowhere. I worry that that's how we might hear this. God has blessed us with a whole lot of nothing, nowhere. But family, no, remember, what is spiritual in scripture? Is, is spiritual less real than material? God is spiritual. <laughs> is God less real than his creation? Is spiritual even separate from material? Remember when God created humans, he breathed his spirit into a pile of dust. I think these spiritual blessings Paul has in mind are the realest, most substantive blessings possible, more real than your home, your car, your paycheck. And what about heavenly places? Is that some far off and future place that has nothing to do with the real world? No, remember, I mean, Jesus says it's at hand. It's like, it's right here. It's right now. If, if only we had eyes to see it. It's not far off and distant. It's immediate and present. And so when Paul says that these blessings are spiritual and heavenly, he's saying that they're more real, more substantive, more valid, more relevant, more sufficient than we can possibly imagine. I think what Paul is saying is that God has given us every good gift that really matters. He's not talking about blessings that amount to nothing nowhere. He's talking about blessings that are everything and everywhere. He's talking about a universe saturated with the gracious and loving gifts of God. And notice that every single one of them has already been given. This is mind-blowing to me. Look at the language Paul uses. He could have said, praise God because God is going to bless us someday with spiritual blessings if. And then the question I'd want to ask is, if what? Like, what do I have to do to make sure I get God's blessing? You know, every day, family, you and I are tempted to live as if that's what Paul said. God will bless you if. But that's not what Paul said. He says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And in the Greek, it couldn't be clearer. The verb Paul uses is in the aorist tense, which means that this is a past completed action. 
God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is a God who gives and gives and gives. He's not stingy. He's not up there in heaven with a bunch of goods he's holding back. Remember, this is a God who gives all the trees. The only one he doesn't give is the one he knows will kill us. Too often, we live like there are things we need to do in order to unlock God's blessing. Like there are spiritual hoops we need to jump through before we can get God's blessing. And the result is not gratitude. It's anxiety and striving and always second-guessing the character and love of God. Have I done enough to please him? Have I obeyed him enough this week for him to love me? Will I get the blessing? And Paul says that you have been blessed with every conceivable blessing that matters. How could this be? Well, he tells us when he says that all the blessings from the Father come in Jesus the Son. God the Father has blessed us in Christ. All the blessings have a name, and the name is Jesus. None of God's good gifts are separate from him. What God does is give us Jesus, and in Jesus, we have all good things. In Jesus, we have everything we need. Family, God cares for us so perfectly in Christ, and not in a removed way. This is a God who comes himself down into our prison cell. He enters into our suffering and he takes it on to himself. Remember, this is the only God who has wounds. A grateful heart can look to the past and remember God's gifts. It can look to the present and see God's gifts here and now. It can also look to the future because God's promises are so sure one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's your future, family. That's God working all things together for your good. Can you see the gift of it all? Can you see the goodness of it? Can you see that you're not the one who brings it about? Karl Barth once said, to believe in Jesus Christ means to become thankful. I love that. Do you want a grateful heart? Believe in Jesus Christ. That would have been a shorter sermon. Believe in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.